0: Sagittarian Matters, Transgender History, Screaming Queens, Bathroom Designs, The T-Word, and more. With my guest, Dr. Susan Stryker, and super special co-host, Chris Vargas. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters is brought to you by Prunes Dipped in Tahini, Ponzini Linguini, and my new advice column, Queer Abbey. You can read Queer Abbey right now for free at Intomore.com. Dr. Susan Stryker is the Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona. She's a filmmaker behind the Emmy Award-winning documentary film Screaming Queens, she is part of a bathroom redesign project called Stalled, and she just came out with a new edition of her book Transgender History with Seal Press. I caught up with Susan Stryker in her San Francisco home, where I was joined on the couch by very special guest co-host Chris Vargas. Chris Vargas is an artist, filmmaker, professor, and the founder of Motha, the Museum of Transgender History and Art. You can find Chris at chrisvargas.com, and you can find Dr. Susan Stryker's new project at stalled.online. Now please enjoy our talk with Dr. Susan Stryker. Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Ah. What is your sign?
1: Uh, I am a Cancer with um, uh, Aries rising and moon in Taurus.
0: Oh. Chris is a Capricorn.
2: With a moon in Taurus as well and Gemini rising. Uh,
0: We're here on the occasion of two things. One is the revised edition of Transgender History came out last year. In November. In November. And stalled. Stalled. Your new bathroom project.
1: Uh, a bathroom co-project. Co-project. Yeah. So um, I'm the the trans person and theory head consulting on the project. It's uh, the architect on the project is this guy named Joel Sanders. Mm-hmm. And there's a legal um, activist, theorist named uh, Terry Kogan who was involved. And a staff person named Seb Cho who's like done a lot of the help with the graphic design work. But yeah, it's a gender neutral public toilet project. We call it like a gender abolitionist public toilet. I,
0: I saw, I went to the website and I saw the video and I looked through the whole thing and it looks so awesome.
1: I think it is pretty awesome. Um, you know, kind of the idea that we're working on is sort of like, how do you use um, design to actually promote social justice you know it's like like say and just so like on the bathroom debate it's like everybody gets all up and out of shape it's like oh should you know trans people who identify as x be in a bathroom that's designed for it's like what if we just design bathrooms differently let's just do an end run around you know this whole stupid debate and make some you know mixed gender multi you know stall uh you know public toilet that You know, it's kind of intuitive to use and, you know, doesn't freak people out. Like, oh, my God, we're going into a unisex toilet. There's probably going to be unisex people in there. Um, You know, so, um, yeah, I think it's been a really great project to work on, you know, like kind of like applied theory.
0: Yeah. And bathrooms over time have had different waves of segregation and non-segregation. Yeah. I mean,
1: um, I think it's really interesting, speaking as a historian, uh, that uh, the first building in the United States that had indoor plumbing, I mean, the first public building that had indoor plumbing was a hotel in Boston built in the 1830s, 1840s. I'm a bad historian, can't remember the exact date. <laughs> I'm um, not going to call you yeah, on it. All right. That's <laughs> right. Um, and um, it. This toilets were not sex segregated. They segregated the ladies and gentlemen's parlors and dining rooms and all that, but the toilets, not so much, you know, which for me just, you know, shows how, you know, socially constructed the whole idea of a natural and necessary sex gender binary is in public space. The other thing, you know, I kind of like to point out is that um, during the bad old days of segregation, you know, not that we still don't have problems with racism in this country, but in the days of legal racial segregation, you would see toilets that would say men, women, and colored, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like white people get to have gender distinctions, but colored people, you know, so-called, it's like, no, not so much. And so like, for me, like this whole debate about, um, you know who gets what access to which sex segregated toilet is kind of inscribed within this like unacknowledged notion of like white supremacy and white centrism white people get to make gender differences other people not quite as not quite as important so same sex public toilets are the norm for people of color in this country from the 19th century to the you know 1960s
0: Oh, yeah. huh. that leads to something we were talking about that i heard you say on a different podcast yes. and i'm not sure how to phrase it can you can you phrase it we, we both i listened to it this morning and then we both listened to it together
2: mm-hmm. you were talking about the tipping point and how gender is the fulcrum of the tipping so forward and backward mm-hmm. and also um so this Essentialist, essentialized bias or bias uh, binary between uh-huh. like men and women and how that is a construction as is race um, or racial categories mm-hmm. or how those have shifted over time. So what was our question about it? I feel like you
0: were talking we- about like transness in relation to constructs around white supremacy. hmm.
1: Do you know, Ooh, sounds it? like something I'd
0: say. Right?
2: It was real smart.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it sounded, it sounded wonderful.
2: Oh, that totally <laughs> sounds like something
0: I would say. <laughs> I think we're not, we're not doing a good job of like summarizing and forming it into the form of a question. Do
1: you remember which podcast? It, it was, was on
0: Tristan termino's podcast. Oh,
1: I remember doing that. Do okay. I remember what I said?
0: Well, no. we're getting there. We're getting. We're kind of. We're, we're reverse engineering it,
2: giving me a little more to work
0: on. Uh, I think. I mean,
2: it was something like we can denaturalize these, like, essential, essentialized categories or this idea of these categories is fixed. Well,
1: I think that we can, you know. Yeah. It's like, I think that we, um, you know, I think we, we have really um, poor, impoverished ways of thinking about what our bodies mean. You know, like you know, bodies are different from one another. You know, it's like people have different genitals, people have different abilities, people have different skin tones and hair types. It's like, there's, there's no problem with like noting that there is difference and that difference has some kind of consequence. The problem is when you start to use these physical differences to create social hierarchies and when you use physical differences to, um, you know, kind of in the belief that they can't be changed. You know, and so it's kind of like, oh, you got that skin color, that was your parents, you know, that's what your hair looks like. You know, it's kind of like you are picking cotton. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and because you can't change those things about your body, then you can't change your socioeconomic position. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's racism. It's like, um I know Tana Hasey Coates kind of gets <clears throat> some blowback sometimes. He's got this great way of saying it where, he, he says, you know, um, race is the child of racism, not the father, you know, Mm -hmm. just like there's like the desire to rank bodies and to put some people over other people. And the tactic of like fixing on parts of bodies or bodily characteristics to create that social hierarchy and the belief that it holds someone permanently in a subordinated position. That's racism. Race is the tactic that racism uses, that desire for power over. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. that system can change, you know. Um, You know, we don't have to have those beliefs about bodies. Bodies don't have to be used in that way. So like we can come up with different ways of thinking about what bodily difference means and not use it as a way to create social hierarchy. Um, You know, and I think the fact that that all of us, whatever our racialization has been, we live in a society that, you know, that, that uses that tactic of like using body difference to rank bodies. And it's one of the reasons that I think trans people freak people out. It's not just about the, the sex part. How could a man be a woman? How could a woman be a man? Ah, it's against nature and God. Um, it's like, it's also against the system that we use that says, if your body is like this, you're fixed into this place. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the idea that someone can change sex and that bodies are not sort of stable anchors for like your, how you get positioned in society, that's actually a threat to the racial system. You know, it's just like, it's a threat to the belief that our bodies, you know, anchor us in place in a a hierarchy. So, you know, it's, um, you know, I I think there's actually a really deep political conversation that needs to happen that, you know, I don't hear happening, happening as much as I would like about like, how is it that like transness and like the ability to like, to, to, to kind of, make your body move you to a different social place? How is that intention and in dialogue with the system that says if your body is like that, then you are fixed in place. So like that, that, like rather than seeing racialization and transness as like opposites, it's like, how do we see them as like, you know, di- different, different ways of being embedded in the same system and like thinking about different kinds of, politics different kinds of strategies about how we can all from our various positions of whiteness and color and transness and cisness work towards um a kind of abolitionist vision
0: yeah yeah that's exactly, exactly what you were saying. All right. We did that. it. We yeah. did it. We kept I did.
2: it. I think you said it even better for this podcast than you did for the last one. Not to brag. I'm not to I'm brag. Been not to, <laughs> I've, been, I've been practicing. Okay? You know, it's like,
1: it's, I mean, these are ideas that I, you know, I kind of, kind of dwell on, you know, like part of it for me is about, you know, how is it that I, as a a white person who's had opportunity to get a good education, you know, even if I had to like, you know, struggle in terms of like class or, you know, whatever. It's like, I wasn't raised to be a university professor. That's not where I came from. But like, how do I use my insights about transness and the kinds of social oppression that I can experience as trans, even though white, you know, to like think about like, well, how do I, how do I like engage with those things that are, yeah, like, So for me, I think like being trans, it's like, it's somebody saying, you can't or shouldn't change your body or whatever change you make in your body. It's like, you know, isn't real, it's fake. It's, um, um, you know, you can't be the person that you think of yourself as being. It's like, I see that as being embedded, not just in a system of gender and sexuality, but it's like beliefs about the body. And like the same beliefs about the body that hold me down as a white trans person, I see, you know, nearby people of color experiencing that same system in a really different way, it playing out in a really different way. And so, like, trying to figure out those ways of saying, like, my struggle and your struggle are not exactly the same, but we're fighting the same enemy. Like, how do you how do you like find ways of like being with, being alongside? Um, you know being, you know, shoulder to shoulder with somebody, uh, you know, in a in a struggle uh, without thinking that like, you know, your struggle necessarily gives you insight into theirs, you know, uh, or that it's exactly the same, you know, it's kind of like, oh, like, I totally understand, you know, racial segregation, because I've been like discriminated against because I'm trans. Eh, you know, it's like, I've experienced discrimination because of the way our society ranks and organizes bodies, but I have not been racially oppressed, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, if I'm committed to like a kind of liberationist politics about transness and I want to like engage the things that hold me down and hold down people like me, I feel like I'm attacking the same system that, you know like leads to racism and white supremacy and so it's just like i feel like i need to be i need to be with those struggles not that those are necessarily my struggles yeah Yeah. makes sense
0: totally makes sense if you have an advice question for sagittarian matters call or text our advice hotline 971-361-9998 leave a message we might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank.
2: So you've been around for a little <laughs> while. I,
0: I, I, I would say
1: I'm a granny tranny, but I'm not
2: supposed to say tranny
1: in public anymore. <laughs> Even though that was like a term of endearment in my coming up years, it's like
2: I miss it. Mm-hmm. I miss that word, you know. Well, I. That's the same for me. When I was coming up, um, I remember hearing about Tranny Fest in yeah. San Francisco, this the film festival yeah. for a trans By, film and
1: for and about trans folks yeah. and yeah, it was Tranny Fest. And, and, it, and it, it it's like it's like
2: manifest, but Fest, right? <laughs> i <I'm laughs> always I wake up every morning Trana Festing. Good, yeah, all, good <laughs> thoughts and yeah. feelings. But yeah, I came up with the same, and I and I aspired to make films and show work because of this platform. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, it, or the, sad. Um, the first, right. I interrupted you and I'm really sorry. You
1: weren't through with your thought and I just stepped right on that line. Do you want, do you want to... Is that an apology? Yeah. I accept. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My tranny story was going to be what, here in San Francisco in the early to mid-90s. There was the, this thing called Tranny Tuesdays at the... Um, at the Tom Waddell Public Health Clinic, you know, which which was like the first, like really like community oriented, not pathologizing healthcare service that I know of for like trans people just like, you know, you walk in and you say, I feel trans, I'd like to try some hormones. And the person writing the script would say, great. You know, what flavor, (laughs) you know, here you go. You know, and they would monitor your health and make sure you weren't shredding your liver or giving yourself a heart attack or, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, it's like you need good health care if you're doing things that, you know, alter the way your body works and functions. But there's a difference between, like, providing health care and pathologizing people for why they're coming to see, you know, a person who could administer hormones. Um, You know, or... Anyway, so that place was called... They called it the Tranny Tuesdays Clinic. And it was like, it was really important. And, um, you know, I just, I, I notice as a historian and as an older person now, just like how language changes over time. You know, um, it's just really the trans lingo has just shifted so much between the first it edition of this book I wrote called transgender history that came out in 2008. Uh, and the second edition, which came out in 2017. So like not even a decade later. And, um, you know, when my publisher seal press, you know, books doing well, really happy with them, you know, um, Anyway, when they came to me and said, "You want to give us a second edition of this book and update it because it seems like some things have happened in the past decade," um, you know, I said, "Sure." You know, and then I went back to look at the book, and it was, I mean, it it was language that was current at the time when I wrote it that less than a decade later sounded like, um, you know, your, your grandma talking on the interwebs, (laughs) you know, it was, um, it seemed really stale and dated and things that, you know, seemed completely like, um, typical to say are things that you would get scolded for saying now, like, don't say transgendered, it's transgender. It's like, okay, well, Grammatically, it does make sense to use an adjectival form here, but I'm cool with it. You know, it's just like transgender, whatever, that's fine. Um, And then the word tranny, it's kind of like the idea that it's um, always um, derogatory. You know, I totally get that some people, you know, feel offended by the word, particularly when, you know, cis and straight people use it in a derogatory and demeaning way about trans people. But, you know, for me, I feel like this is a word that started in the community as a kind of like casual jokey, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, you know, all those trainees here together, um, that it was, it was affectionate and depathologizing, and, um, you know, it's what we called each other. Um, and then, you know, I think the, you know the bridge and tunnel crowd picked it up and uh, you know the people who were like trying to like cop a cool queer feel you know like they started using the word in a way that um, you know was not respectful Um, and uh, I think an upcoming generation of trans folks it's like here the like they're more exposed to the mainstream abuse of the term than they are familiar with a community based you know you know affectionate use of the term. So anyways like I I do regret that that word is not as available right now as it once was, but you know I kind of stop using it in public speech just because you know it's like why you know why needlessly yeah. offend someone.
0: Should we bleep it out of the whole podcast? People will be like what word are they using? What word are they talking about? No, I
1: think we should use it, you know. <laughs> I think you should be in the podcast.
0: I wonder you know talking about words that people used to be able to use and can't now and so like how do you reconcile an imperfect past when we interact with young people so say that i like i meet a young person i'm like oh we're kind of on the same side and then and then they're like oh my god you know like that movie you like is not it's not appropriate for now and then i feel like they're you know the early like call out culture or young people that are kind of triggered by a lot of things that I see as being imperfect but being valuable historical objects or just pieces of culture from a different time. You know, I, th-
1: I find that really hard. And it's one of the things that actually makes me wonder. It's like, oh, maybe I'm getting too old to teach college, you know, um, because I think it is really important that young people have people in the classroom that they can relate to and, like, help them, like, come to the next step, whatever their next step is, And, you know, my frame of reference is, you know, somewhat, you know, not as current. I mean, I try to stay current. I try to, you know, I try to, you know, keep up with what's happening now. But, you know, I just um, sometimes don't get, you know, why people are so triggered by some things. You know, I I actually... um, I've sort of only been fired by one grad student, <laughs> huh? you know, where like they came in just outraged about something. And, um, you know, it was about language, about like something that I had because I'm a kind of a flip, you know, sarcastic person. And, you know, I said something thinking like, you know, we're just talking trash, you know, sort of between each other. And they got sort of very offended and I said, I said, girl, if I was as thin skinned as you, when I was your age, I would have bled out in 15 minutes. You know, it's just like, it's like, it was, you know, there's a lot of sharp edges in the world and you gotta, you know, suck it up and, you know, boom, you know, she was not my student anymore, wow. you know, and you know, I, you know, it was, I will say it was kind of a wake up call in some ways to me. Um, you know, it made me pay a lot closer attention to, um, where, you know, you, you said it's kind of sarcastically like kids today, you yeah. know, like it's like, I think people who have grown up in online culture, um, and like there's certain styles of, you know, interacting there that either like don't translate well into the real world or like there's, you know, different little, you know, media bubbles that, you know, people are in where it's like, you're not necessarily encountering, you know, people who share radically different, you know, opinions, you know, than you, you know, everything feels so like segmented and, you know, everybody's in a little echo chamber and, um, you know, it's like, I think, oh, you know, like, it's like people under the age of 30, you know, I would say it's like have grown up in this environment where there's, sense of subjectivity and self and sociality and communication it's just like it's in a different it's a different culture than the one that I was socialized into and so you know I want to be respectful of all of that you know it's kind of like all right you know these are like fully adult young people who like have their take on the world and they're smart. And like, they understand something about the world that they've grown up in that maybe like, I haven't noticed. And, you know, I should pay attention and learn from them and, you know, mm-hmm. just listen. And, um, you know, and there will be times where I'm going like, I just don't get what the problem is here. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, the, the, um, um, you know, and it's, it is dicey, you know, like I, um, you know, like, what? what's the, like, I have, like, absolutely no problem with, like, anti-fascist people shutting down Nazis. You know, no mm-hmm. problem. You know, zero problem. Uh, and yet, you know, I would say, um, well, I do embrace this sort of notion of, like, everybody should be able to, you know, say anything and everything at any moment, you know, free speech, you know, whatever. But then like kind of gets into these conversations about well, what's the difference between like speech and violence? You know? And it's kind of like, oh then like what's hate speech versus allowed speech? It's like there's lots of little slippery slopes to go down. And um, you know, it's like it's not it's not always clear, I think, um, yeah, where where to draw the line or like, you know, like why would I s why why would I say like I think you should be able to watch a movie that has, you know, like really vicious transphobic stereotypes in it. Um, And, you know, because you're going to learn something from watching that uh, and not have somebody say like, you know, you're perpetuating violence against trans people by exposing us to this. It's like, I should not be forced to watch it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, well, come on, why not? You know, it's like, it's like, there's a history of anti-transgender oppression. It's like, learn, you know, learn that history, you know, uh, and use it. Um, and then on the other hand, we're like, well, you know, like, why, why should, you know, people be like, isn't like part of historical change the idea of saying like, we don't have to put up with that shit anymore, But you know? So, I mean, it's like, I'm just saying it's a, it's a complicated conversation to have, you know, my, my, um, My gut level is, like, I don't want to talk about trigger warnings, you know. I don't want to, like, talk about safe space. It's, like, the world is not safe. Things trigger you when you are out there. It's, like, learn how to, like, you know, deal with that. Um, You know, and on the other hand, it's, like, you know, I don't like that sort of attitude of saying, like, it's, like, toughen up. You know, the world's a hard place, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we should be working towards a better world where you don't have to encounter things that are, like, violent or demeaning or, you know, prejudicial towards you. And on the other hand, because that is in the world, it's like, I feel like we need to learn how to counter it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about somebody I know was teaching a class and a student, like, refused to read Stone Butch Blues because of the homophobia and the violence in it. And I was like, oh, my God, they're losing such a great opportunity when they're refusing to read that book, that's part of the curriculum.
1: You know, and I, th- th- this is just me thinking out out loud. It's like, um, you know, without like a well-formed opinion. Um, but half the podcast, half it? the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but, um, oh, where was I going to go with that? Um, I had a thought in there. What was it? Um, well, that's so much of like queer and trans culture, uh, it, it it forms in opposition to oppression, mm. you know? And like, for me, like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of queer humor and style and whatever, it's like, there's like kind of an edge to it, you know? It's like, it's a way of like talking back, you know? It's a way of flipping things. It's like, it's very much in relationship to social oppression and ignorance and stigma, you know? Just like, to me, like that is what, a queer aesthetic and sensibility is. And the idea then of, you know, say like, oh, well, what would trans be without oppression? You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Um, and so this this sense for, I think people who have like come of age in the Obama years who, and, and particularly like those whose, formative years, you know, for their political sensibilities were Obama's second term when like so much was happening that was positive in terms of, um, you know, certain kinds of quote unquote advances for trans human rights and civil rights, very unevenly distributed, you know, (laughs) progress, you know, like it wasn't, um, it wasn't good for everybody, but it's like things seem to be like tending in the right direction. And if you, you know, kind of came of age in those years, this sense that, you know, you're just supposed to be like welcomed and that you're, you know, it's cool who you are and, you know, welcome to the table of social inclusion, young trans people. Um, and then we get, you know, kicked in the head with the Trump election in 2016. It's like, I think a lot of people are just, you know, like they like, don't don't know how to engage with that you know yeah. it's like I mean there's a lot of legitimate reasons for freaking out right now I yeah. mean it's just like uh, 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 danger you know we are in the shit right yeah. now and yet for me like I feel like I have this historical legacy to draw on you know, like I remember when I was coming up it's like Trans people are psychiatrized, pathologized, criminalized. There's, like, no positive, you know, media representation. You know, you get fired, you lose your kids, you lose your house, you don't get a job. You know, it's kind of like that is the world that I came out into as a trans person. Um, And, you know, I feel like, okay, we're not back there yet. It's like we might be heading in that direction, but it's just like... What's changed is that there's not a public affirmation of trans identity right now, Um, you know, and and I feel like, okay, well, like, I know how to like, live my life without, you know, getting positive reinforcement, Mm -hmm. you know, and that history of oppression is something that, you know, like teaches you how to survive.
0: Today's episode of Sagittarian Matters brought to you by Maddie Dog, Madeline Berger, Mary Pinson, Shoshana Ruth Wector, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that is your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's Ponyo's voice. Chris, what have we not talked about?
2: We haven't talked about um, Screaming Queens. (laughs) (laughs) I love that film, the film that you did with Victor Silverman. Victor Silverman, Um, buddy from grad school. And you spent some years at the GLBT, Historical Society, as the ED, right? And you and I sat in rooms together before. Mm -hmm. And what was always so impressive to me is your, like, fount of knowledge of history in general, but trans history specifically. So... Screaming Queens is such like a, a wonderful thing to pull out and out into the open. Yeah. What stories or what like piece of history that you know um, you th- and you think deserve equal attention?
1: So many. Um, and for those in our listening audience who don't know the film Screaming Queens, uh, it is about the nineteen sixty six riot in San Francisco at Compton's Cafeteria at the corner of Turk and Taylor Streets, which happened three years before Stonewall, you know? So it was, um, you know, an early instance of militant resistance, primarily to, you know, to police harassment, you know, that trans people would get busted just for, you know, walking while trans. And the Compton's Cafeteria was, um, you know, a cheap place that was open 24 hours a day where you could, you know, get food and show off your latest outfit and, you know, sober up after a night in the bars, you know, by eating, you know, cheap beans and eggs and toast and, you know, stuff like that. Um, And when the police came in to raid the cafeteria one night, it's like, you know, trans women and street queens and gay hustlers, they resisted. And, um, you know, I just thought, you know, right on, you know, so it's like, I wanted to tell this story. Um, I mean, when I found that story, I wanted to tell it, um, you know, not in an academic article or a book, but I wanted to make a film about it. Cause I kind of wanted to put word on the street, you know, like I wanted to, um, I wanted the Compton's cafeteria riot to become something that kind of gets woven into people's cultural and historical memory, you know, just like, you know none of us were at Stonewall, but we know what Stonewall was. You know, it's like none of us were, you know, at the Battle of Lexington and Concord, but, you know, we learned about it in our history books. And um, so I wanted Comptons to become that, you know. I thought, yeah, this is a cool story. I want to like, you know, I want to remember it for you wholesale, you know, as Philip K. Dick said in one of his stories. Um, so, um, so yeah, that was a great story to find, you know, the, I, um, I had done my PhD in history at UC Berkeley. I came out as trans as I'm finishing that dissertation. So like, there was like no way in hell I was going to get a job as a out, you know, trans lesbian history professor in 1992. That just was not going to happen. So I thought, well, you know, like, what do I know how to do? You know, it's like, I don't want to be a historian. Uh, what am I? Like, trans is what the world lets me be. So, like, why don't I just, like, go do trans history and I, you know, figure out how I'm going to make a living and keep a roof over my head and eat and, you know. So I just showed up at the, what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society. And said, all right, I'm here to volunteer, and I'm here to learn, you know, what I can about San Francisco's trans history, and I just plowed into the archives, you know. It's like I, um, you know, I was very involved with the organization for about 12 years. Um, So it started out as a volunteer. I actually learned how to, you know, process archival collections. I went on and got a certificate in, you know, archival science. Um, I you know, did a lot of volunteer work there. I uh, was on the board of directors eventually. And in 1999, I became the first paid executive director of the organization. Um, And I did that for almost five years, um, like two months, one month shy of five years. So anyway, it's like, I kind of made a career for myself as a historian outside the academy. But what that all that work let me do was just like, I i mean, I, I feel like the archive was like my my toy box, you know, is my treasure chest. It's just like I got to go to work every day and a lot of it was you know you have to write grants and you got to talk to people and you have to manage staff and you have to schmooze politicians and rich people and you know blah blah, blah to get money and you know it's like it's the not it's the nonprofit world so there was a lot of that but there was also a lot of opportunity to just you know read a lot of really cool historical materials i mean like you know the newspapers and journals and magazines that the queer community of san francisco had put out over decades and people's personal papers and letters and you know ephemera club flyers you know business cards just kind of like i really just got to immerse myself into the historical record um and digging through the archives, I came across this story, you know, like this, this thing, it was actually written in 1972 uh, in the, turned out in the in the program of the first gay pride parade in San Francisco. For, in this program, it says, you know, we're here to celebrate Stonewall this weekend, but don't forget, you know, gay pride started in San Francisco in 1966 when these, like, queens fought back at the conference cafeteria at the corner of Turkey Taylor. And I was going... You know, it's like, I've never heard of this. And, you know, like, what is it? Is it like some, like, East Coast, West Coast thing? Is it um, an exaggeration of something? Like, what is up? Like, how could it happen? And nobody remembers it. So I just started digging around kind of in my spare time and, you know, finding some little scrap of information here or there. And, you know, over time, you know, by around, I think I came across that, first reference in about nineteen ninety four ninety five, and over the course of about five or six years it was like you know I feel like I put the story together it's like damn sort of it happens and we found somebody was there and we you know we you know so let's make a movie about it uh so that was a really cool you know really cool uh project to have worked on it's like it's one of the things I feel proudest of in my my working life because I do feel like it became a story that um, people are beginning to know you know Mm -hmm. Um, and it did enter into historical memory Uh, and it is sort of inspiring you know it's like it's like yeah you can resist you know and change happens and that's good
0: hello listeners Dr. Stryker did have more to say about a lesser-known figure in trans history, that being philanthropist and leopard owner Reed Erickson. But talking about him was a giant can of worms unto itself, and so we will have to unpack the mysterious life of Reed Erickson in a future episode. Thank you for listening, and in the meantime, look him up.